Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, we've got a really important conversation with Dr. Lane Forsman about his research on sexual violence services from a social work perspective. This is episode 72 of Untenured Tracks. just submitted um an article off of my dissertation like a month ago um and like this station is sort of the culmination of like what i've been trying to do and why i I decided to get a doctorate and how i got involved in this crazy world of academia um (laughs) i'm a social worker um you know that's but it's the profession that I, i i live and work in um and one thing that i noticed while i was in the field is that when it comes to sexual violence services, I mean, they're not being done very well in general. We're trying very hard, but they're just not resourced very well. Mm-hmm. Um, as that puts a lot of barriers in place. But we're especially not doing very well about talking about the variation that ha- of experiences and needs across gender identity. Okay. Uh, and so we're in this space where the common conception of someone who experiences sexual violence is a cisgender female at the hands of a cisgender male. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like statistically, it is the most common version, and that, but it's not the only scenario of people that happen. And so, because that's the way we've conceptualized it, though, even with service centers trying to expand their services and trying to uh, be welcoming to all people, the public still views most centers who deal with sexual violence as women's centers, and that's still like the public perception on it, even. And so what I did for my dissertation uh, was specifically looking at how does gender identity affect both the kinds of experiences that college students have when it relates to sexual violence, but then also how does it affect their life afterwards? What are the outcomes they have of it? And do different gender identities uh, experience uh, disruption in different ways? Uh, So that was sort of the project that um, I I ran through and I was finally able to submit um, over a year later, finally, (laughs) uh, (laughs) off of my dissertation, getting an article out there. Uh, And I mean, it's, it's not the outcomes aren't the most positive for our, the trans female students. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's looking like, you know, trans women who've experienced sexual violence on a college campus have, uh, a much greater chance of using substances, using them more often, using many more of them, having a more a mental health uh, disruption and symptoms, um, having a higher disruption in their ability to be academically successful after the fact. Uh, and so I don't know what, but there's something going on there, specifically in the trans female experience, mm-hmm. um, that's making recovery after an event of sexual violence on a college campus much more difficult as compared to um, their peers on campus. That's really interesting. So this is like, at, this is this is 
taking me back. <laughs> this is, <laughs> I, I got I got interested in this stuff because of victimization. So I, I was originally a victimologist and looking at, at adolescent violence and um, not sexual violence specifically, more, I guess, what the literature would call like street violence, which I, I hate that term, but um, I, I guess it, it kind of is what it is. Um, I hate that term too. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, like I, I don't think that people really think about um, like differences in how people uh, uh, experience life after after their victimization. Um, and and as you were talking, like I was thinking, I was I was flashing back to teaching, um, like this from a data perspective, right? And how, um, as as you know, uh, the the DOJ changed the definition of of rape, um, like expanded the definition of rape, um, in 2015, I think it was. Um, and and like how interesting it is to teach that to students as like here was here was the old definition that was very uh, limited, <laughs> um, and here is here is this new definition that seems that seems very obvious, um, and and tries to be more encompassing. But then all several years later, right, like there's still no services in place, and still I I imagine a very um, in, in applied spaces, a very limited understanding of of why that definitional change mattered, and um, like I said, um, people can't just like walk off their victimization, right? Like, there's all kinds of bad stuff that happens um, that they yeah. experience afterwards. Yeah, and even with that, because um, that, that change in definition is something that um, the first project I did when I started my doctoral program was looking at. Um, we have a really hard time collecting data by gender identity in general. And so it's kind of, sometimes it's hard to look at identities other than cis male and cis female when we're talking about this stuff. Uh, so one of the first projects that I did was looking at how do, uh, how do males on, cis males on campus perceive the availability of support? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, the fact that like the DOJ was putting all men who experience sexual violence, even rape into a separate category, like in their statistics, uh, w- was something that like we had to look into is like how is that possibly contributing to this and like that's a much larger project and then we we couldn't do it in in that particular moment um but it was definitely a connection that we had to make and like trying to understand like what's this world of this particular class of survivor trying to navigate services yeah and it's so tough too right because of like title nine and uh i mean like you were talking about before the perception that that victim service centers are are typically going to be like women centers. And so what do, what do guys, I mean, even like cisgender guys, what do, what do they do? How do they approach this from a legal standpoint? Uh, how does, how does the university then respond <laughs> to it from a legal standpoint? Because we know, unfortunately that title nine offices um, more often than not uh, are looking out more for the interests of the university than, than of um, survivors. Um, and so it's, it's such a heartbreaking like area to do research in, right? Yeah, no, I mean, like, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't really been, you know, living in the research world of it for that long, but I have yet to find much in the way of, like, a positive outcome. Um, like, that's for sure. Uh, and it's also frustrating, too, for, like, because this is where I got into it, is, like, for the service providers, like, how can we get them better information um, so that when someone shows up who isn't the prototypical survivor of sexual violence, like, they're prepared to work with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and something that I learned was, like, so uh, the university that I went to for my PhD, so I went to Florida State, like, their sexual violence service center has done some work to actively try and be, and be inclusive of everyone, but they can't get the students to show up. 
um, which is the other side of it. Uh, and so there's still that, that student perception side of things where it's like, well, that, that space isn't for me, even though they're trying to make the space for them. And so it's one, service providers aren't prepared. And then two, survivors don't think the space is meant for them. <laughs> and so it's that double-sided barrier of like trying to get around both of them. But why do you think survivors don't think the space is meant for them? Well, I mean, there's been... I, the way that uh, we've conceptualized this idea of sexual violence uh, is for a long time been structured as uh, a system of power of men over women. And that is definitely an aspect of how sexual violence plays out. Um, it's very true when you look at um, the work around violence against women and what it means to be a woman in certain spaces and experience sexual violence. Um, but that was the overarching message of what sexual violence was at its core for a long time. Yeah. And by messaging it that way, people who don't fit the mold of what is considered the standard survivor sometimes get left on the wayside. Uh, as far, especially if you, if you're someone who's of a gender minority, like we're, when we get even out of like, out of the idea of like uh, cis men, but people who are like, I, I, I haven't even figured out my own gender yet, much less you all are, are very strictly in this world of like working with cis women. Like that's even another step removed. Uh, and, Service centers are coming around. They're trying to do different messaging, but especially like in the '90s um, and early 2000s, like that was the message. Like this is this is a women's issue, and yes, women are the most often affected group. But by messaging it that way, people who weren't that couldn't necessarily see themselves in the space. Oh yeah, no, I, I remember being in grad school in the mid 2000s and being introduced to that to that debate. Right? Yeah. Like, is is sexual violence and the intimate partner violence more broadly? Is it something that men can experience and and just being exposed to like the politics behind uh the framing of, of victimization for the first time was so disheartening yeah. <laughs> and seeing ways that that people were sort of like weaponizing um suffering like it, it's so like honestly disturbing you know like denying denying the fact that somebody might possibly be able to be victimized in a way um, it, it's, and, and using that for your own political gain, um, in academia where like <laughs> in, in a field, in a field in academia that has had very little success recently of, of gaining any political traction in, in the <laughs> yeah. world, why, why on earth are, would you play this game? Like I, I just, and that was 15 years ago, you know, or, or more than that at this point, um, and so it sounds like things are still kind of like that, but it's like maybe maybe we're arguing over different definitional things. Yeah, I mean, it's getting better to an extent. Uh, I mean, there, there are still, you can still find people in practice who will have uh, opinions around a cis male showing up who will use things like, well, if the person experienced sexual arousal or achieved orgasm, then it couldn't have really been a sexual assault. And it's like, that's not how biology works. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, uh, no. Um, so that's, that stuff is still out there. Those misconceptions are still out there. Uh, and so it does make it a little bit harder. But there have been advances. Uh, Sweden actually, mm, three, four, maybe five years ago, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember exactly when it happened, but opened the first um, rape crisis center specifically for men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're starting to produce some new information that will be helpful uh, in that arena and looking at what can we do to um, expand services um, but even still, that co- we're still living in this conversation of the dichotomy between uh, cis men and cis women and really haven't looked into much around what's going on in non-cis spaces. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. 
vast growing, I don't want to say like middle, but um, other, I guess. That's probably inappropriate too, this vast growing different space. Um, yeah, like just even like thinking about, and it feels like a billion years since I've been able to teach stuff face to face and have been able to have these conversations <laughs> with students. But like there are times going through some of the, the history of like sociological stuff and it almost feels embarrassing. Like this is how people in the in the far off past of two thousand and two <laughs> used to <laughs> used to treat stuff in caveman times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, here we are, and we've made like teeny tiny little steps forward, and um, are, are still functionally kind of fumbling in the dark. <laughs> yeah, in a lot of ways. I was. I, so I actually, uh, I, I, I live a lot in the queer spaces and research just in general. Uh, and so I got to create an elective this past fall for my program that was specifically around um, service provision for uh, queer clients. Mm-hmm. And like during that class, I had to be like, so until this last summer, queer people could still be fired from their jobs legally like this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so like, I mean... I'm in a criminology program. And so trying to teach students about like the difference between politics and justice and like kind of have to pick a side, you know, if you want to do politics and you should, then you're going to be a lawyer or a politician of you want to do justice and welcome to a life of being just perpetually mad and frustrated at the world. Um, Yeah. Uh, So I'm, I'm curious, like what made you want to jump from social work into, into higher ed? Well, for me, it was more about uh, I, I was I was I was seeing these problems in service provision. I, there was a lack of knowledge and a lack of resources. And for me, one of the easiest ways to address that was to start to be a knowledge producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I I wasn't really conceptualizing a good way in practice to really have the chance to make some of the changes I would like to see in the profession. Mm-hmm. And so if I moved up the rung and became a social work educator and helped produce future social workers and produce research, maybe I had a better chance of making some of the changes I would like to see in the profession. That's really cool. So just like doing it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Good for you. Um, Thanks. So like thinking about what we've been talking about and so it's, it's, exceedingly rare on this show where I know what <laughs> the first time interviewing is like, I'm familiar with your, with your area. So I, I want to be sure that folks listening to this who aren't familiar with victimology and victimization, um, understand some of the stuff that we've been talking about. So one thing that you mentioned when you were going through your disc and, and the article you were able to produce from it was this idea that, um, there are, are gender differences in victimization outcomes, um, and also in, in the experiences, and, and that especially um, for trans students, um, that these these outcomes are uh, seem to be considerably worse. And so I, I was wondering if you could um, elaborate on that a little bit for folks listening who may not be familiar with the ways that um, sexual violence victimization can lead to sort of a, um, an array of, of negative outcomes. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, in general, I mean, I think one thing that people misunderstand about sexual violence, if it's something that's not affected them, uh, is that typically speaking, the vast majority of people who are victimized are victimized by someone they know. 
Uh, and so because it's someone you know, that already comes with its own context of how it can affect you in your life. And if we're talking about a space like a college campus, which can be very insular, you may not have the ability to avoid that person. Uh, and so they become a constant reminder. And so that can, that can really affect the healing process mm-hmm. of how someone moves forward. Uh, generally, what we do know about someone experiencing sexual violence is that anyone who's experienced sexual violence is at higher risk of experiencing um, mental health symptoms, whether that's uh, suicide, suicidology, um, substance use issues, depression, anxiety. Um, in the sexual realm, it can lead to the, the dichotomy of either sexual dysfunction or um, starting to behave in ways that are riskier as far as um, contracting STIs and potentially experiencing future sexual violence can lead one of those two ways. Um, It's a huge distraction on college campuses as far as your ability to be successful as a student. Um, A lot of students who uh, experience sexual violence may not even finish their degrees at all um, for no fault of their own, really. Uh, And so there's all of these, and a lot of them come down to... uh, either responses to the violence um, organically or a maladaptive coping skill. Uh, so when we look at things like uh, the substance use, it can be this issue of like, you know, I'm experiencing PTSD and I can't sleep because I have nightmares about this event, but if I get wasted every night, then at least I go to sleep. Uh, and like, sure, you found a way to go to sleep, but like, what are the long-term consequences of continuing to drink that way uh, on both your physical and mental health? And so there can be negative outcomes that are directly connected to the event and there can be negative outcomes that are I'm doing this thing to try and get over the event and it's providing some benefit now but in the long term won't really be great for me. So we have that myriad of possibilities that are just sort of sitting out there of what can happen to someone. Uh, and then there's also the um, when we start look, talking about like gender differences and how that can affect outcomes. So my so the um, the data set I had for my dissertation is the um, American College Health Association's National College Health Assessment. Um, so it's a, a, a national data set um, of hundreds of institutions. And within this, one thing uh, is that, so men were actually much more likely to experience forms of sexual violence, um, like multiple forms of sexual violence within a 12-month time span. Mm-hmm. So cis men. Other, the other groups were much more likely to experience only one of the possibilities, whereas cis men were much more likely to experience multiple forms. I don't know why that is. Um, I mean, we already know that uh, outside research um, shows us that college men are more likely to experience uh, um, violence by multiple assailants at once mm-hmm. than other groups are. Um, and so that's something that we know about like going into it. What might that person's experience have been uh, which is important for a service provider to know when they show up um, to sort of screen for that reality. It may not have happened, but if we know it's likely, we should we should figure that out now um, because that can affect the severity of the uh, attack and what the outcomes might be for the individual um, biopsychosocially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's I, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know that. That that cis men were were reported a, or were were victimized at a higher rate, or reported at a higher rate, I guess. Um, it, so, cis men on college campuses are five times more likely than their peers who don't go to college to experience sexual violence. Wow. Yeah. Um, now, cis women on campus are still the group that experiences sexual violence at the highest um, rate. Mm-hmm. Trans women are right behind them, mm-hmm. um, and then with uh, cis men and uh, trans men lower but still experiencing higher rates of sexual violence than their non-college student peers. Um, so. so it's something about college. Yeah. <laughs> that, 
that creates it. And so that, that kind of answers a, a question that I was going to ask uh, about why you were focusing um, your, your work on college students, but it, it seems like <laughs> that, that, that addresses that or that answers that, right. That there's something about college that is, is creating conditions where, where this type of violence is happening more, more than outside. There's something about college that's doing that, but also uh, when we talk about trying to make connections between the survivor and the service provider, uh, it's much easier to make connections on a college campus. The, those two things are much uh, located more closely to each other. Mm-hmm. And so if you make the connection there, you can start to extrapolate how it might work in the community as opposed to trying to start in the community where those connections are not as readily available necessarily yeah. and work backwards. Yeah, yeah, kind of taking advantage of, of universities sort of uh, paternalistic, I guess, uh, or, or legally paternalistic uh, uh, stance that they have to take um, towards students, and, and and like we're obligated to make you go to this this resource provider, whether you want to or not. Yeah, and then we're not going to follow up on whether or not you do that. Um, in some cases, I don't speak for every university. Um, but that's so interesting. So, what do you think it is about college that that engenders this kind of violence? I mean, some of it's just proximity. Uh, I mean, when you think about the way students live in a college setting, it's, it's different than what we see in most other settings. Uh, you know, there's dorms and Greek housing and all of these places where uh, people just have much more access to each other. Um, but then also at the same time, some of the things that we know increase the risk for experiencing sexual violence, uh, such as uh, substance use, um, and partying behaviors are also very prevalent in that environment. So you have access to each other and you are participating in things that increase the probability of sexual violence happening. Uh, and so that sort of pr- just mixing pot of things that is a college campus. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like the, the delayed, well, like, yeah, I guess like the part of college that, that involves like a delayed entry into adulthood. Yeah. It creates those, those conditions. So I, I have to imagine that when you when you have the opportunities to talk about this stuff in the classroom, that uh, students <laughs> students must have varied reactions to it. I mean, my own experience teaching um, from a, from like a sociological background, uh, the two topics that get my students to shut down immediately are sexual violence and race. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious <laughs> if it's just is it just my failings as an instructor, or is this something that that others experience as well? Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because I haven't ever I haven't gotten the chance to like teach a class around the topic. But obviously, I mean, we're talking about uh, teaching social work practice courses mm-hmm. and talk about the different kinds of services you can provide. Like it, it comes up, and I think I think it's it's a couple of things that are going on. But students are definitely they're either far far less comfortable to having the discussion or just like ready for it. Let's do it, um, and that seems to be the dichotomy of students I've run across. Um, the ones who are like, this is a problem, so yeah, we're going to talk about it. The ones who are like, I really would rather not ever, thanks. Um, <laughs> uh, and I mean, there could be, I mean, there's there's something to be said for just the general way that the conversation has been framed and how people are not having comfortable having conversations around sexuality to begin with and then violent sexuality on top of that. Uh, but then if you're talking about it's a college campus, uh, I mean, it, it's likely 25% of my classroom may have experienced sexual violence at some point during their time on campus, those students may or may not really want to delve into that conversation if it's triggering for them in some way. Yeah. 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 And I, I've seen universities that in their attempts to uh, 
have discussions about it during like like first year orientation. Uh, use videos that are sort of childish, in my opinion. Um, that that I, I think to try to deal with some of the the ways that students might be uncomfortable with it. They, I don't, I don't want to say like trying to dumb it down, but like like it's almost like Sesame Street. <laughs> You know, and then so, but like the consequence of that, I think, is that students are now like less inclined to take it seriously because the video was a was an actual joke, um, and our our memories of first year orientation is that that goofy video we had to watch, <laughs> and, and less about taking it seriously. Yeah, I mean, like, there's something to be said for like simplifying concepts and putting them in ways that are less potentially trauma inducing to deal with, yeah. but you have to like, you have to follow up on that in some way. You can't just be like, here's the video and then be like, okay, we're done. Like that's not, not really the responsible way to handle that. Yeah. Um, very 1980s sex ed style of, of handling. Yeah. Stuff. We're going to, we're going to split you up and then you're going to watch one video and then you're going to watch the other video. <laughs> yeah. Because have you seen uh, the T video on consent? Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's one that, like, I think if you use it in a classroom where there's a follow-up conversation can be a good conversation starter. I don't think it's one where you go, hey, watch this. <laughs> Box checked. <laughs> yeah, and I have, I have heard of cases where <laughs> that is, that's how it's been treated. Um, yeah. And then just kind of leaving the students off to, to figure out on their own <laughs> what, what the moral of the story was, which is not how you handle something that, that is really an epidemic on, on campuses. Yeah. Um, so for, for those, I guess for both, for both types of students, both classes of students, um, the ones that are really enthusiastic and the ones that are significantly less. So uh, when you're, when you're able to have these conversations about sexual violence on, on campuses, do you ever have the experience of like being able to tell them something that they're surprised by? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think students in general are super prepared for uh, the reality of college in many ways. Uh, and so, and while I know that um, those of us who work in higher ed and those of us who especially work in victimology fields understand that like the college campus is kind of breeds certain kinds of destructive behavior, unfortunately, yeah. uh, students, I think tend to have sort of an idyllic sense of like, I'm off to college and I'm going to go live on my own and do this fun thing. And I get to be woo. And it's like, yeah, you get to have all of that. Um, and, but then they start hearing some of the statistics. They're like, wait, so like, there's some not safety things I need to be worried about. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to scare you off, but like, yes, there are, there are things that you should be paying attention to. Um, and so there's that, sort of reality where it's like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to leave them thinking that college is going to be this awful, like life ending experience or anything, but it does come with its risks. Um, and that is something that they're, they can be very shocked by. Yeah. It, uh, it strikes me as something that, that I think might come into like really stark relief now that hopefully schools are going to be able to go back in person, um, over the summer and in the fall. But like I, Throughout the, throughout the pandemic, I've been focusing a lot on, like, or thinking a lot about, like, how uh, we unfortunately tend to treat students way too much like customers, and I need to be treating them as, as like, community partners and community stakeholders, and, like, their their voice matters. Like, at my university, I tell them all the time, like, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania is 
uh, a shrinking city um, and voter turnout in the city is, is really, really small. So if the students wanted to run somebody for mayor um, and take over a city council, they could pretty easily do that. Um, and they, they always are like, there's, there's no way, like, that's not, that's not possible. Um, but the, like the last incumbent got 800 votes, votes in the primary and, and lost. So like, there's a few thousand of you, like you could, you could take it. And so I, I kind of am thinking about these types of issues and like substancey stuff on campus too, is like universities are, are so desperate to treat students like customers so that when they come to tour campuses, it's like, oh, of course, like there's no violence on our campus. Like this doesn't happen. And nobody has ever gotten alcohol poisoning and public safety is really just here for show. (laughs) um, That's, that's why (laughs) to drive you home from the library when it's, you know, 15 below. Um, But in reality, I think what probably needs to happen is like these realistic conversations about like, but we're going to treat you as partners in this endeavor. And here's this negative, here's like these problems that you, that students typically experience and what can we do together to make sure that that doesn't happen yeah well and it's, it's too for me like especially coming um from my professional perspective and um being a social worker who uh, has been focused a little bit more on macro level stuff lately um I, they are conversations that frustrate frustrate me in a certain way because there's part of me that's like i i shouldn't have to be telling you how to protect yourself from like this asshole over here uh what I should be able to do is work with the university to dismantle the systems that allow these things to happen in the first place. Um, but that's not going to happen tomorrow. So in the meantime, here are some things that you need to watch out for while we try to do that work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 It's great that such and such university developed, you know, uh, nail polish that will change colors if, if something's been slipped into your drink. But let's yeah. let's figure out, like... <laughs> Uh, all of these other issues in, in the first place. Yeah. And, yeah. And, like, I also feel that that sort of absolves universities of any responsibility to, you know, it, and, and ultimately then reinforcing like all sorts of, of myths about why sexual violence happens. Yeah. Um, so what about the students that don't want to talk about it? Have you, do you have any like insight on how to get them more comfortable talking about it? Is it just a matter of, of time, like getting comfortable in that space or. I mean, I, on some of all it, it's, it's kind of a fine line to walk because if, if, if the student is not wanting to talk about it because there's something in their personal life that like they just can't handle this for some reason, mm-hmm. uh, then they're like, there needs to be some aftercare to the conversation to make sure that like they don't need some further support. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and it's a fine line for me to walk in those situations because, uh, yes, I am a trained mental health professional, but I cannot be my student's mental health professional. I'm not like it's not appropriate. Um, if I ask them direct questions and they answer me in a certain way, Title Nine says I have to do something, and the student may or may not want me to do that. Um, and so, in those situations, it's sort of seeing the students who are re- really reticent and checking in. I'm like, hey, if they're like, here are places you can go. Like, if it's a if this is a thing that you need to like deal with. Um, and doing it in such a way where I'm not putting them on a spot and forcing them into anything, but like at least giving them that chance to process. Mm-hmm. And then if it's not something, if that's not why they're reticent, uh, if that's not why they're holding back, then typically what I've seen is it's more just like it, it's students who haven't really figured out how to have uncomfortable conversations in general. Mm-hmm. And so it's time to start modeling like, hey, especially if you want to be a social worker, like 
uncomfortable conversations are going to be your life. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> uh, that's, that's when we get into more of like the modeling of like, here's how we do this. Um, and let's start participating because we're going to do it here in this classroom right now in a safer setting where if you, if you start to say something that might not go well with the class, like I can bring that in. Uh, but if you do it with a client out there, like, like let's learn that now. <laughs> you mean to tell me that the heart of social work isn't just like, so how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so how does that make you feel? <laughs> yeah. Tell me about your mother. Oh, she's right over there. Well, <laughs> let's go in the other room. <laughs> That's interesting, though that that students would would want to get into social work, but then still have that. Do you think it's just being like introverted? Do you think it's just sort of like a maturity issue or a maturity gap, maybe that they haven't they haven't emotionally caught up to where like they want to be at intellectually, maybe. I mean, so there could be something to be said about um, just natural personality traits that lead people to um, be reticent for those kinds of conversations. There's something to be said where, yes, um, I mean, like, we don't typically have freshmen and sophomores uh, in our programs, but even still juniors and seniors are still trying to navigate the world of, like, what does it mean to really be my own adult? And so there's that playing into it. Um, But I think part of it, too, is that, like, we have a bit of a branding problem in social work, and a lot of people know what we do. Um, (laughs) People, we have a lot of students showing up to our door like, I want to help people. And it's like, cool, um, how? Like, <clears throat> like what's, the, what's the impetus there? Because like, <clears throat> you can end up doing a lot in this field. Most of it's not going to be rosy every day for sure. So when you say help people, like, what do you mean by that? Because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, you could end up working as a substance use counselor. You could end up working in domestic violence. You could end up working uh, with children in foster care. You could, like, there are so many things you could end up doing. And most of them are going to be people who are likely at the worst point in their life at that moment that you're working with them. So let's understand that now and start yeah. building for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, I, I think it's fascinating, too, that students, <clears throat> students have this, this desire to want to help people, um, but don't have like the language for how they want to do it. Um, yeah. And I think, honestly, make it like overwhelmed with the ways and like, uh, the amount of suffering that exists out in the world and sort of like, I can't fix everybody. I can't do it all at once. So like what, like literally what battles am I going to pick? Like it, that's so, I mean, even for me now, <laughs> it's, uh, it, you know, it, it's tiring sometimes. And so I can only imagine like the, the shock that students must experience. Oh yeah. I mean, it's a lesson I had to learn in practice where at some point I just had to get comfortable with like, I never worked with children. Um, so it's important I said to get comfortable with, like, my clients are all full-grown adults. Like, they get to make their own decisions. Um, it's their life to live how they want to live it. Now, if that means that they continue to experience negative consequences, like, that sucks. But I can only do so much on my end. At some point, like, they have to start joining in the process. Uh, and if they're not, then, like, not my fault. It's awful. But I can't take responsibility for everyone. Or I will burn out in a week. <laughs> yeah. 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 So a good message for, for folks listening to who are new to teaching or, or maybe uh, starting to teach for the first time, because I, I just I just flashed back to a, a conversation I had with a student. Gosh, I don't remember when about like, what do I do when I lay out everything for one of their classmates that they need to do to get something done and they don't do it. And I was like, not my problem. <laughs> like, eventually, like I can't. 
I can't, I can't do everything. You know, I can give you everything you need and say, come back and talk to me. I'll, I'll always be here for you. But if you never come back, then like life goes on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and helping, especially undergraduates to learn that lesson, lesson before they get into the field. Mm-hmm. Um, cause undergrads tend to be the ones who have, a, they're a little bit more nebulous in this idea of help where they're, they're just like, that's what I want to do with my life. And I heard of social work. So I'm here. Um, most of the time, grad students have had some amount of time to figure out, like, a direction, or maybe, like, at least, like, they have, like, four they want to pick between. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not dealing with that just, like, general concept of help. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so helping them learn that reality before they get out there, where it's, like, you're going to work with a bunch of people, and you're going to help as many as you can, but that's not going to be everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just impossible. And, like, yeah. you said, you'll, you'll burn out in a week, and then you're not yeah. anybody. That's, yeah. There, there goes your, your work. Um. So I'm curious uh, if if somebody stumbled onto this this interview on Spotify or, or wherever you choose to download <laughs> your tracks from, whatever your preferred podcast platform is, easy for me to say. Uh, <laughs> my three year old has this has this thing she started doing where she adds like L's at the beginning of words. So like yesterday, <laughs> she was singing about her family, and I wonder if I've started to do that. <laughs> I think I just said podcast. Um, that's how my, that's how my quarantine is going. (laughs) Uh, wherever you're downloading this podcast from, uh, uh, what would you want them to take away from, from your work? Because I mean, we've covered a lot of, like a lot of territory in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. I like research wise, the one thing that I really try to stress, uh, for people to understand is we need to stop treating, um, people as monoliths, like groups of people as monoliths mm-hmm. uh, that like, especially like when, when I talk about like going back to my dissertation research, uh, you know, I only had the ability to break down my sample into cis male, cis female, trans male, trans female. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the sample to do any more than that. Yep. Um, but a lot of research prior to that is just like, Hey, trans people. And it's just like one umbrella over here and acting like every trans person has the exact same experience. Yep. Uh, and then it's like, that's not, we, if we're approaching groups of people in this way of like, you are all the same, um, then we're, we're making what others, uh, whatever situation that they're in and whatever othering they're already feeling worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we got to start treating people as the individuals they are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have summed up a lot of my qualms my very recent qualms with like quantitative work (laughs) yeah and uh sitting through um research presentations and and stuff that sort of needlessly reduce people to dummy categories um has has just become something that that really upsets me um and so it's interesting that you you say that right because it, it it can apply to like so many categories of people Right. I mean, it's, it's a race thing. Um, it's a social class thing. Um, and like the work that I do seeing students who are, are, and sometimes in the discipline very broadly, um, faculty who are more than content to, um, lump, uh, all poor people into one category (laughs) and all, um, 
like the the label of Hispanic is is functionally useless. <laughs> it has <laughs> has no quantitative value whatsoever, but um, it's it's still there. And so, like that's a good example too of what we were talking about, right? How the discipline is <laughs> sort of embarrassingly like behind the times. Um, but I guess folks would say that that's just the data that we have. Um, so uh, another thing that I, w- I was wanting to ask you about. So uh, um, I, I've asked folks in the past on, on this show about their thoughts on um, the idea of objectivity. And I've never got the chance to talk to somebody in social work about that. And so I'm just, I'm just curious, um, like, like, what do you teach your students about, about objectivity in research? Um, do you think that it's, that it's possible to even be objective? Um, is it, is it just this myth that <laughs> academics, uh, uh, preach about, um, some worship at the altar of, and it's just kind of a false idol? I mean, in the world of social sciences, I think objectivity exists to a point. And I think we can train ourselves to have a more critical mind of our biases when we start to do something. Mm -hmm. I do not think it's possible to 100% remove all subjectivity from research. I I, I can't see a way, especially in the social sciences, where that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we have to own that. We have to discuss what that could mean for the research that we're doing. Uh, I, mean, I mean, for instance, it's, it's inappropriate for me to sit in spaces and talk about my research around sexual violence, especially spaces where um, it's speaking to survivors mm-hmm. and not own my own survivor identity in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Like, I... otherwise it comes off as me being this preachy whatever who is just telling them what to do with their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and I would be completely lying if I said that my own experiences didn't inform some of my decision to get involved in this work. Mm -hmm. Like that's not, uh, and so, yeah, I think objectivity is a lens that we can try to use. I don't think there is a gold standard of it existing a hundred percent in social science research. Yeah, no, there's, <laughs> there's not. And even something you just said, right, about like your own experiences being part of the reason why you're doing the work that you're doing. Like I, I'm thinking of, of some of the, the lectures that I've heard on the importance of, of being objective and that idea of me search and like don't do research on something that uh, you have uh, familiarity with already because that's going to inherently uh, bias your findings. And it, it just seems so bizarre <laughs> in, in the year 2021 that there are there are people who are still sort of talking about that like there's a difference between recognizing like if your data isn't giving you the findings that you wanted it to or that you hoped for then you kind of just got to live with what the numbers say versus like hey I'm, I'm interested in this thing because i have experience in this in this area and that's what's motivating me to do this research like the idea of of shooting that down or shutting that down just seems ludicrous today. Well, and just the idea in general of saying <clears throat> we can't have voices of people who have these experience in their research leaves yeah. way too much chance for people to be making incorrect assumptions in, in what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, like myself personally, like one of the, one of the communities that I work with um, is the trans community. And while I, I identify as like cis ish, um, I, I don't have the lived experience of like existing in a fully trans identity. And so pretending like I could be an expert on that community in any research I do is ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Um, I need voices from that community to help me in the process, or I could be doing something completely harmful and ethical without even knowing it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think lots of people are content to be doing stuff that's completely harmful and unethical and it's getting them published. And like, that's what's important. And like the idea, at least in criminology over the past few years that, uh, folks are, are making careers and making like decent salaries on the backs of a lot of folks suffering. Um, even though they're an anonymous, you know, case ID in a, in a large data set, like you're still benefiting <laughs> from, from that person's uh, life and maybe they got $20 to complete that survey uh, or whatever, you know, 30 years ago. But like, I mean, like there's something that makes sense. Like it's a lot of sense to me though, because like, I mean, we talk about me doing sexual violence research. I'm asking people to give me their trauma so I can do things with it. Uh, And having no one on a research team who has any idea of what that trauma could look like, like means that you could be doing a lot of harm to people. Um, and, and especially if I'm going to be asking people to let me hold their trauma in order to do research with it, then there needs to be a lot of care taken in that space mm-hmm. uh, and, and what we're doing and how, what that looks like. And like a lot of respect given to you. Yeah. Um, even thinking about it in terms of like asking students to share stuff in class and when students have shared stuff, uh, when students have, have sort of gone out on a limb to share personal stuff about their lives, um, I think that's... I mean, incredibly brave, but also an opportunity for faculty and other students maybe to sort of downplay the seriousness and the severity of those situations. And again, just like using trauma, other people's trauma as a learning experience that's then like discarded with all of your other knowledge at the end of the semester because it's not something you had to regurgitate for a multiple choice test. Like, I I don't know, like it seems kind of dehumanizing. Well, there's also the faculty side of it, too, that this is something I I harp on in social work a lot because we deal with a lot of marginalized identities, Mm -hmm. is uh, creating a classroom space where students can feel comfortable to share their lived experiences if they're important for edifying student learning. But I should never, no faculty should ever expect a student to behave as a Native informant. Um, Just because you know someone has an identity, you don't turn to them and ask them for the information. You create a space where if they want to share it, they can. Um, Yeah. 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 And sort of, yeah, that that classic, like, using, especially, I mean, students who are racial minorities experience this constantly, being being asked to speak for your, your people. Um, yeah. Majority white, <laughs> heteronormative, uh, capitalist, <laughs> uh, Christian classroom is, in a way, like, re-traumatizing and, and like, replicating generations of colonialism, <laughs> you know? Yeah. For learning, <laughs> which is maybe not how learning is supposed to, to operate. Um, yeah. So I uh, have taken up a lot of your time, and I have an angry dog upstairs that I need to go mollify. So um, <laughs> I'm going to end it a little bit shorter, but um, you are more than welcome to come back <laughs> whenever you would like to when I don't have an angry dog in the background. Um, thank you so much for uh, giving me some of your time today, Elaine. Yeah, thanks for this. This is a good conversation. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show um, as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us um, positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. 
all of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, um, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H E Y D R W I L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.